The Anchored City Podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue Welcome to the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. We are currently between seasons, and this is the third of our Between the Seasons episodes. We will be doing a number of these episodes from time to time as we wait for season two to begin in the fall. The mission of this podcast is to connect with Anchorage's soul through our histories, stories, and people. Today we will focus on the people part of that mission as we talk with Zainab Kilich from the University of Alaska Anchorage. Dr. Kilich is a professor and the chair of the sociology department at UAA. She is also a food researcher and a filmmaker. And while she's an academic, she is speaking in this episode as a resident of the city of Anchorage. And there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of all the roads I'll ever walk Thanks for having me. My name is Zainab Kulich and I am a professor of sociology. I work at the University of Alaska Anchorage and uh, I'm an immigrant in the U.S. I was born and raised in Turkey, so I moved to the States in my early 20s. And uh, this is, I think, the end of my 28th year in the United States. And um, I'm a cultural sociologist. So what that means largely is that my work is really occupied exploring identity in general. And I think me being an immigrant probably, you know, feeds that quite a bit because I'm always sort of traversing this, are you from here? Do you belong? Do you not belong? You know, are you Turkish? Are you American? Are you Turkish American? Are you American Turkish? What does that all that mean? Um, And uh, lately I'm in the very interdisciplinary area of food studies. So I'm still asking this similar questions around identity, but specifically in the food realm. And I, in 2016, I completed a documentary called Tables of Istanbul. And basically looking at these questions in terms of what comes to the dinner table, really. Is it more about geography and climate? Or is it more about um, national identity or religious ethnic identities? Is it about social class? You know, what really sort of defines when we talk about cuisine and belonging? Thank you. So how long have you lived in Anchorage and sort of what brought you to the city? I moved here in 2008, so about 13 years. And I moved up here because my brother, who is my only sort of Turkish family in the U.S., uh, was living here. And 
it felt so far away. I was living in Arizona at the time that we would usually meet up in Turkey. And I just thought, well, I really want to be close enough. And, and if he has kids, you know, I wanted to really know his kids and not as sort of a stranger. So that prompted my move to here, which is a little different than uh, many people you know, whose stories I hear, they will come up for a hiking trip and they'll fall in love and they'll be like, oh, I can't leave hope or something like that, which was not the case for me. I probably would have never chosen to live in Alaska if it wasn't for my brother. So when you first moved to Anchorage, and I think this might be the background for your documentary as well, but when you first moved to Anchorage, sort of what were your impressions of the city and its people and and kind of when you first landed, what what came to mind, especially through the eyes of, of being a sociologist? Yeah. Um, so I had a really rocky uh, beginning. <laughs> and um, I have to be careful in the way I explain it because I don't want people to think that I hate it here or I didn't like it. But in general, um, I felt very out of place. You know, unlike those people that I'm referring to who are like in love with Alaska and can't think of living elsewhere. This was not the case for me. I came because of the human factor, like the, you know, I had a really close friend from graduate school who was living here. Her family, I consider to be my American family. And then I had my brother. So, you know, I had like a great social uh, circle kind of already set up for me, um, which was great. But otherwise I grew up super urban. And, and this was the smallest place maybe I felt like I've lived in as an adult. And, um, and I'm not very outdoorsy. So, you know, I felt very out of my element. And, um, and I really struggled with that. So one of the things as an immigrant that I really sort of took pride in was that put me anywhere, whether it's Senegal or Tokyo, somehow I'll find a way to blend in and, and make it my own. And maybe this was the first place where I felt deeply challenged by that because, you know, you know, I'll probably be that idiot who makes the news, you know, 0.2 miles from the parking lot because I didn't know, you know, I felt I was in the jungle and I didn't know if the, <laughs> which way was north. Um, you know, I get lost in the Mize Loop in Kincaid, you know, or you know, I get sort of like uncomfortable as if I am going to be lost or that, you know, stakes seem super high here, like bears can maul you, moose can stump you, you know? So, uh, and I was coming from a, a sort of a, I guess, collection of experiences where if I was at the subway in a seedy part of New York at midnight, I felt a lot more confident than I felt here. Um, and even though when I moved here, I was training for an Ironman event. So it was like the most uh, maybe active part of my life. I still felt like a couch potato compared to my friends. You know, they were just doing so like, I don't know, backpacking trips, like traversing mountain ranges. I mean, so I, I felt, I, I guess maybe in a way this place made me feel incompetent and uh, not quite confident in my abilities, like things that I just considered myself to be, just felt kind of lost here. Um, and then I thought, how do you feel like you belong somewhere? You find some thread of familiarity. And that's usually where food comes in, right? Food is like one way you feel super connected or tethered. So in the kitchen, I can be myself or I can make it my own. Well, all of a sudden, here I am. You know, I grew up in a very Mediterranean uh, place, you know, having seasonal food and fruits and a lot of sort of selection. And then all of a sudden, I felt 
kind of lost in that realm too, because if I wanted to eat seasonal or local, um, you know, I was sort of confronted with like completely different set of choices. You know, I'm not a hunter. I don't really love protein that much. So moose, like as an idea, I want to eat it, but kind of feels chewy, you know? So I, I, and then like all these root vegetables, like, do I want to eat celery root for six months out of the year? So, um, you know, I felt a little lost there too, because I was like, well, I don't want to be constantly eating things that are like flown in from Mexico or something that just felt wrong to do which then meant that maybe I have to like relinquish some of my Turkishness to be able to fit here. So, you know, I got really, I mean, this sounds like maybe um, way too much. Like why, why are you philosophizing so much about living here? But it literally initiated these deep thinking, like, do I fit here? Am I, if I die here, am I going to be happy here? Like, and um you know, even my topic kind of felt far, like I was researching second generation Turkish migrants at the time, like looking at Germany, etc. And I kind of felt like, oh, nobody really cares. It seems too far from here. It just doesn't feel relevant. So that's sort of uh, what prompted uh, actually me switching over to food studies, because I was like, boy, half my days like thinking about you know, food and how I fit here in this climate, um, I might as well start studying it. So that's um, initially how I sort of at least pushed myself to think about how I can feel like I belong here, like I can carve a little space for myself. And there was one specific moment that I feel like was a turning point for me. I was invited to be on a panel by... Um, I think it was Jimmy Riordan who uh, did the what, how, what We Eat panel for the Anchorage Museum. And it was moderated by Julia O'Malley. And she asked the question, she said, usually in my experience, people will look at Alaska either from a perspective of lack or abundance. And she said, you know, where do you find yourself? And, and that question was super pivotal to me because I realized in that instant, all I'm doing is looking at it from a lack perspective. I'm thinking, I don't have the sunshine. I don't have the kind of beach I like. You know, I don't have the kind of food or the fruit. And, you know, if, if I don't have those things, who am I or how can I like it? So at that point, I, I did really decide that I need to really do, you know, work a little harder in, in terms of appreciating the abundance and the variety that I'm confronted with here that I didn't know of, but I need to really appreciate it and like it. Um, so I can't say that right now we're in love, you know, me and Anchorage or Alaska in general, but I definitely feel more at ease uh, with where I am, I guess. It's a very long kind of meandering way of telling you my relationship with here. Oh, no, that's great. That's a wonderful way to, to hear about your relationship. And everybody enters Anchorage in such a different way with different experiences. Yeah. Um, with your eye, your eye for sort of food studies and how you experienced Anchorage through food, I would love to hear you um, talk about what maybe the way that food is offered in the city. It feels, at least in my mind, I've been living in Anchorage for a number of years now, that there's quite a bit of diversity in the city. But maybe what does that tell us about the people in Anchorage? Like, who's here, what are they looking for, those type of things. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that around food and kind of the people in Anchorage. Yeah, so I guess I can start by um, 
talking about the diversity of the place to begin with, which then I think gets reflected in the food environment as well. Um, Dr. Chad Farrell, who is also a, a professor of sociology at UAA, has done the census research that gets cited quite a bit in town, um, looking at you know, how demographics of um, Anchorage has changed over time and how the diversity stacks up against the rest of the nation. And he basically shows the increasing percentage of foreign-born population, um, you know, from the 70s, looking at all the way to 2016. And, you know, in 1970, that was 2.7%. And in 2016, that was up to 10.3%. And the other thing to note here is that in, this, in the 70s, you have over 60% of the immigrant population represented by, you know, Western European, Canadian, you know, kind of wealthier nations, right? France, Canada, Germany, Ireland, et cetera. And then when we come to 2016, uh, this picture really switches quite a bit. You have 57% of immigrants, you know, representing Asian populations, you know, the Philippines, Korea, Japan, Thailand, Vietnam, et cetera. And then 21% of uh, Anchorage's immigrant population is now represented by Latin America and the Caribbean, you know, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Dominican Republic, et cetera. So you can kind of see that there is a considerable, you know, browning and yellowing of the um, migrant population here. And of course, the variety of countries the immigrants come from also kind of increase, which then is easier to observe, you know, in the school district in terms of, you know, who the kids are, but also in the food area as well. Um, we have, I, it feels like for a, a, a place that is so small, in my opinion, um, we have really high level of diversity. And that was something that surprised me a little bit. And this is, you know, I have no research to back this up, but my personal um, observation has been that people, it just almost seemed like they have more disposable income to spend on eating out, or they seem more interested in eating out here. Um, and I don't know if that's because maybe we are a little bit kind of landlocked and other than playing outside, maybe there are not a whole lot of options. And this is just something that we, you know, pastime, especially long winters or something, but, in general, there is definitely, I mean, if the number of sushi restaurants are, are an indication, <laughs> we definitely have quite a bit of interest in this kind of food. Now, interest in, you know, what could be considered like ethnic eateries have been, you know, a global phenomena for sure. Um, but in 2019, I was uh, teaching a food class and we did um, the whole class studied basically dining reviews for local ethnic eateries. And one student worked with me specifically at the intersection of race, ethnicity, and food. And she went through like uh, everybody who had the restaurant food permit. And we identified 228 sit-down restaurants in Anchorage. This is in 2019. Um, and then we identified the ones that could be considered ethnic. Obviously, this is a little bit arbitrary, but, you know, we had to go through all the web pages. And then if the food business or the Facebook page, et cetera, was presenting itself as like specifically ethnic, you know, not just saying we sell pizza, but saying something like Sicilian grandma recipe or something like that, kind of presenting itself to be 
uh, different than the typical American fare, then we coded that as a ethnic eatery. And so that was 107, which is 47% of all sit-down restaurants, um, which to me feels like quite high a number. I mean, I, I don't know all the other numbers in terms of percentages elsewhere, but that is almost half of the eateries are basically presenting ethnic cuisine or owned by um, you know, foreign-born or immigrant population, and that's pretty high. And then when we look at um, municipality of Anchorage, has some numbers where they talk about how compared to the percentage of foreign-born population, the self-employed residents, um, you actually have a much higher percentage of foreign-born within the self-employed um, demographic. And they bring in about 37 million in business income according to Inclusion Municipality. This is back in 2018. So in that sense, we see that um, they are a major sort of a significant uh, you know, portion of the state's sort of food economy. And um, as, you know, just a few months ago, Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinian wrote a piece about COVID restaurants sort of uh, era, what was happening there. And, and uh, they stated that three quarters of the new restaurants that opened in Anchorage in 2020 served cuisines from countries across the globe. Right, so Caribbean restaurants, Greek, Indian, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, perhaps the idea that people would rather eat, um, you know, from smaller family owned eateries that represented um, sort of ethnic cuisines rather than eating at fine dining restaurants. So, in that sense, it's fascinating um, that we have not only in terms of people who are feeding feeding us that they seem to be coming from, you know, various immigrant stocks, but also that people who are eating are interested in eating these uh, diverse cuisines. And last thing that I can mention is that when we look at history of the you know, United States food systems, um, research shows, for example, um, there's a book by uh, Professor Krishnan Ray, and uh, he talks about how in the US, we have always depended on immigrant labor, right? So whether you're looking at the farm setup or the kitchen, whether it's in the domestic or the commercial arena, that in fact, over 66% of all food workers have been represented by ethnic populations. It's what he calls ethnic toil, right? So, um, and this is really important for us to know because when we think of, you know, eating ethnic food, it just, we think of this shiny, beautiful, yummy side of uh, this encounter, but there's also the sort of the ugly, dark, you know, people working in the kitchens, people picking stuff on the, you know, uh, fields and, and the conditions that they work under, whether it's the chicken processing plant, et cetera. But basically, everywhere you look from the, you know, raising, harvesting, processing, cooking, cleaning, serving, right, there is a lot of stuff that's happening there that's really outside of the native-born populations. And in fact, we do know that foreign-born have always numerically dominated food-related jobs since the sort of the early days of modern America, cooks, grocers, bakers, bartenders, right? Dishwashers, restaurateurs. So compared to white-collar occupations, which tend to be much more um, occupied by native-born populations. So in that sense, our city really fits within this larger um, 
picture. I mean, we are also, just like the rest of America, quite diverse. Um, in fact, Dr. Farrell identified Mountain View as being the most admirationally diverse neighborhood in the U.S., right? But in general, Anchorage appears in the top 15% of most diverse spaces within the nation. And then we see that the city has really embraced this identity of uh, being uh, diverse, right? This is seen as like one of our sort of distinctly urban and uh, kind of, you know, our strength, so to speak. And we see initiatives like... Um, Former First Lady Mary Kimmel, I, I believe, initiated the Welcoming Anchorage uh, along, you know, with many other places in the U.S., but she sort of brought it here a little bit. And, and that kind of initiative really highlights this idea that we have diverse communities and that they, uh, you know, economically contribute back to the, you know, state and it's important. And, um, and of course, food in general is really one of the easiest ways that people, uh, immigrants can sort of enter into the, um, you know, workplace, you know, they may have, I don't know, like if you have a language barrier, um, when you start a food business, it, maybe it's a little easier than starting a professional business. You may not need, you know, certificates or, you know, nobody's asking you if you're a chef. If I'm Turkish and I open a Turkish restaurant, people just assume that I'm authentically great at Turkish food, right? Um, so in that sense, it's it's always been typically the, uh, the first place maybe people think about, you know, owning their own small business and then they have the authenticity factor sort of on their side. Um, and then that's one area that they can start working in. And then of course, around town, we look at um, Anchorage Community Land Trust, for example, have the setup shop um, and the Grow North Incubator Farm, and they provide training, business assistance, lending assistance uh, for um, entrepreneurs, but particularly for refugees, women, right? So addressing issues of poverty, inequity at the neighborhood level. And that is a, a really important point um, because immigrants may be super motivated to sort of work hard, like to catch the American opportunities, but they may not have the know-how and they may not be familiar with the system. And this, this kind of, uh, you know, initiatives really kind of give them that leg up that they can um, be successful at what they want to do. So in that sense, what I see is probably what many other people see, which is that we have a vibrant um, community when it comes to ethnic food scene. Um, and we have many um, local and statewide sort of uh, you know, groups like uh, the Alaska Food Policy Council, et cetera, that really support this kind of thing. And then, of course, the consumer, the Alaska residents also seem to be based on, you know, my own personal experience that they are really interested in this kind of stuff. And um, like my students always will tell me one of the first things people will tell me, oh, there is Turkish delight. Have you eaten there? We love it. You know, that kind of thing. So it's the easier place for people to connect to each other. Well, thank you for that um, wealth of information as we're kind of talking about people in Anchorage. Um, you're drawing on, I know, your work and your colleagues' work and your students' work. And I know with the sociology department um, disappearing at UAA, one of the questions I have is like, what effect will that have on how we understand the place that we live in? So you're able to bring all this information from all these different angles because of that department. So I would love to hear your perspective on, on what we may be losing on how we understand our place. Yeah, so I think that, um, first of all, what we're experiencing here at UAA is, 
is actually happening in many other places around the country. There, there seems to be this, you know, as budgets shrink, et cetera, the priorities are shifting in terms of what we value in education in general. But in general, there has been, a, in, you know, mounting pressure in higher education. And then, of course, anytime there is, you know, when the, the pie gets smaller, unfortunately, humanities, arts, social sciences tend to be the, the first thing that gets targeted, right? People tend to think that if you have, you know, job creators or, you know, job training, that's just going to solve all of our issues. Um, unfortunately, that's a very narrow and short-sighted uh, way of looking at our future. Because when we close down departments like sociology program, um, one thing we know around the country, all the surveys that are done among the CEOs and hiring managers, what they say is that teaching people on the job the things that they need to do at their job is easy. They can train people on the job, but they cannot train or teach people critical thinking skills, right? Brainstorming, research, you know, coming up with actual solutions that can be applied, working in teams, understanding cultural diversity, cultural sort of appropriate uh, strategies, working with teams of diverse people. I mean, these are the things that they really want graduates to have. Well, these are exactly the kinds of things that you would get as a result of studying something like sociology. So, for example, I mean, everybody's talking about health, right? Healthcare industry, we, we need more people, you know, drawing blood or whatever, nursing, so on and so forth. Okay, that's great. Um, but they will have to work with extremely diverse demographics. And if they don't know their patients, that their social class, that their neighborhood level factors, that their race, ethnicity, immigrant status, age, you know, mental health, et cetera, the way that that's going to affect their relationship with their healthcare provider or how they're going to be seeking, you know, healthcare seeking behaviors or their health outcomes, or if they're going to actually follow the suggestions, well, then that, that's a huge issue, right? And so I think one of the biggest challenges of living in the sort of the capitalist, uh, you know, global economy that we have, or in a place like the US where we value the individual so much, we unfortunately miss the structural issues that could be constraining people. So we tend to think of if an individual is succeeding, oh, it's because they worked hard. But that is such a small uh, sort of section of understanding the full picture. So it's very important to know that structural factors may be supporting or inhibiting individuals. So when we look at the failing individuals, it's very important to understand the kind of factors that could be contributing to it. So when, for example, our graduates work at the Anchorage Community Land Trust or Arc of Anchorage or Providence Hospital or the political campaigns. I mean, these are the kinds of things because they know exactly what happens at the neighborhood level, at the state level, and how those things connect back into some of the institutional and structural factors. And without understanding them, you can't really propose good solutions, right? And in fact, this work that has sort of started with Dr. Farrell's work looking at diversity of Mountain View, um, when we talk with the student, Caitlin Taylor, who works at ACLT in Mountain View, she said, you know, it, it has made such a difference for the residents 
who lived there. Because up until then, people only talked about Mountain View or Fairview in terms of, you know, how poor it is or how dirty it is or how, you know, crime or people don't feel safe or, or there's like drugs issues, right? That, that this is the only way you sort of conjure up these places in people's imagination. And she said, this became something that people can be proud of, that there is a community here that really thrives and want to thrive and want to work towards something. And, um, and this makes a huge difference, right? And then of course, supporting these kind, you know, refugees, women, you know, immigrants, et cetera, to open up their little shops that thrive in places like Mountain View is the kind of thing that everybody, you know, like we're a brewery or a lollipop shop, whatever those things are. That's the thing that really makes a difference that moves the needle. Um, you know, one of the, you know, very famous research outcome points, for example, that uh, crime doesn't necessarily go up because of uh, people becoming poor, right? But if inequity goes up, then you see actually crime, you know? So in other words, you know, if, this, if there's injustice and, and, and things are not fair, maybe people are more likely to like give up and just like consider alternative ways of, you know, reaching the end goal. Um, so in that sense, you know, when you lose a program like sociology, you're basically losing the opportunity that our graduates can really understand the place with all of its re really, you know, complex social factors and to be able to relate to, to the place that they live in and work towards solutions. But also um, this, when we look at our student population in our department, we tend to have a higher percentage of, you know, black indigenous uh, students of color, um, first generation students, rural students, veterans, um, and they like it because they start seeing and understanding their circumstances, right? They, they, it gives them the tools and the skill set to be able to understand what's happening to them and, and to be able to actually do something to return back to the community and, and really make a difference um, in terms of moving the needle maybe as a nation as well. So, I mean, when we look at our situation right now, I mean, there's political polarization all around the world, but I mean, the Black Lives movement, right? I mean, it's how can we close down a program like sociology where we do teach race and ethnicity and globalization and demographics and urban sociology? And how can we be the only state in the nation who doesn't offer a program like that? So that to me is unfortunately indicative of short-sighted thinking that could be explained through supposedly numbers, but it doesn't really make sense in terms of the kind of identity we want to push forward as, as a state. Because as a state, I keep hearing this, that we are diverse and we are a distinct urban environment. And then these are the people who study and, and you know, really understand and push forward those kinds of agendas. So how can you take that out of the equation? So it, it's super sad. And as a result, we are going to lose faculty who've done you know, work like this uh, locally and nationally. So that's super sad as well. It's, I feel bad for the students who won't be you know, um, exposed to topics like that. Obviously, the individual faculty who may or may not lose their jobs in the long run, I mean, we're educated, we have enough experience, we, you know, we'll be okay, we'll figure it out. So I don't mean to say that we're sad because we, we may lose our jobs, but even if we keep it or you know continue elsewhere, I kind of feel like it is a loss for the state um, in general. And we were able to save the minor, uh, 
And I do hope that we can bring back the uh, bachelor program in the long run. But of course, in the meantime, if you lose some you know, important faculty, I don't know how we would get people back. But, you know, we're still working to advocate. And uh, if people are interested in advocating us, obviously, Board of Regents will be the one place where people can probably bring, bring up issues like this for them to reconsider. So thank you for asking that question. We appreciate the opportunity to say why we think we should be sticking around. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. So the final question I'll ask you is with doing that important work, and I do think it's important work for the city and for the state, what do you do in terms of self-care or mindfulness or spirituality to kind of keep yourself centered as you do your work? Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, being a sociologist can be kind of depressing sometimes because we're always so sort of in tune with social problems. We're always paying attention where the, you know, unfair or the injustice is happening. Um, my brothers always joke that don't invite a sociologist to a party, they will bring down the mood rather quickly <laughs> because every joke could be racist, sexist, et cetera. But, um, you know, sometimes I do feel a little um, sad, like thinking that all I'm doing is showing students all the ways we may be failing, you know, in the world. But um, I guess it's important to maintain level of hope. And, and one way I do that is um, in terms of paying attention to people who do good work, right? And, and use them as a sort of a muse uh, to move forward. But then also individually, what I personally have been exploring in the last, I don't know, a decade or two is, is a little bit of looking at, um, I mean, very minor ways of understanding things from a Buddhist perspective, um, trying not to take things personally, you know, understanding that, um, I mean, we're in the salmon state, but still somehow maybe pushing back against the current is not always the best thing. Sometimes you just got to flow with it. Um, so I try to do that. And as I, you know, aspire to be a better Alaskan, um, being out in nature to really center yourself and, you know, and, and to sort of enjoy if there's a bit of sunshine to get out and enjoy that rather than sticking home base, thinking about all the things that are not going your way. Um, for me, food is always the best way to connect to people. So during COVID, since I'm stuck home, I've become even a bigger um, cliche, you know, doing things like regular sourdough baking and other kinds of things. And uh, even if we can't get together with friends, I've been baking and delivering and cooking and sharing with friends. So for me, um, those are the best ways to center myself, like connect to people through some level of sharing. Usually that's food for me, food and laughter, trying to connect to nature, and then always coming back to, um, I tell students at the beginning of every class, uh, I will play a little bit of classical music and we will do a one minute breathing activity to just sort of like get back to, no matter what have happened before, can we just sort of center our breathing and then just pay attention to where we are and, and do our best in the moment? So those are some strategies that I try to do. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your expertise and what you do to stay centered in the middle of your work. I appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Thank oh, you. thank you. Thanks so much, Joel.
Anchorage, or any city, is not just made up of its geography or its architecture. It's more than its physical space or city planning. What truly makes up a city is its people. My thanks to Zainab Kilich for joining us and helping us think about the people of Anchorage. The Anchorage City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission that in part makes this podcast possible. We are also grateful for our partnership with Street Psalms. Check them out at streetpsalms.org. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and recommend us to your friends. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchorage City Podcast is hosted by Joel Kickenfeld and is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the head, heart, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they are supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org and on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme song is by Anchorage's own Monica Lett.